Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. In today's program, my guest is James O'Toole, Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern California's Business School. O'Toole research and writings are in the areas of leadership, ethics, corporate culture and philosophy. He has addressed hundreds of major corporations and professional organizations. And in his extensive public speaking and writing, he has examined how corporations have dealt with social, political and economic change. O'Toole has been executive vice president of the Aspen Institute and has been named one of the 100 most influential people in business ethics by the editor of Edisphere and one of the top 100 thought leaders on leadership by Leadership Excellence magazine. He is an author of 18 books, most recently The Enlightened Capitalists, Cautionary Tales of Business Pioneers Who Try to Do Good While Doing Well. You can read more about the book in the blog page of Transformers podcast. Welcome, James. Well, it's good to be with you, Kai. Uh, last time we met, we started to have a chat about is sustainability sustainable? How would you like to define the word sustainability in your work? Well, first of all, I think you're asking the right question. And it's one that I've been uh, struggling with for over the last decade and why it's so difficult and also so important, because you can approach the issue of sustainability from a scientific uh, perspective, you can uh, approach it from an economic perspective, and you can also approach it from a political uh, perspective. And uh, they, are, they are complexly interrelated, all three, uh, but nonetheless, they are, there are some distinct aspects to them. Um, from a scientific point of view, uh, it's actually the easiest of the, of the three to look at because the data is very clear. Uh, you know, the, the planet is in trouble and, you know, if we don't act, future generations are going to pay a terrible price. Uh, almost everybody who uh, is, is rational and has thought about this issue uh, agrees with the, the conclusions of, uh, of, of tens of thousands of scientists around the world. So that, I, I, for me, that's the simple part of it. The more complex part of it uh, are, are the economic and the political aspects of it. The economic aspect, which I include in particular, uh, the effect on corporations and, uh, and their responses, uh, that is a mixed picture. Um, there are good signs around the world, but I would like to focus just on the US. You know, there are some companies in this country who are taking the, the sustainability issue very seriously and they're trying their best to address it. But uh, at least in this country, uh, they are in the minority, uh, by far in the minority. Uh, the Almost every corporate executive uh, talks a very good game. That is that they all say the right things, but there is a great disconnect between uh, what they say or what their aspirations are and what they're actually doing in terms of their own practices. That's why I've been mainly focused. Then the third issue, of course, is the, the political aspect.
with the last years of development uh, globally, corporations today use the word sustainability very often. And, uh, uh, but do you think has the meaning of sustainability got stronger position in the top corporate management leadership uh, strategies of today? Well, to the extent that they all talk about it, yes. And to the extent that they are willing to do things that are not costly. Uh, the classic example of this uh, is the Walmart Corporation, which uh, has been uh, the largest single private employer in the United States. Amazon might be today, uh, but we can also use Amazon as an example of the same thing, but we'll, we'll use Walmart for a minute. Uh, Walmart decided that sustainability uh, was a very positive word to use in terms of uh, their public image, and particularly because they had very bad uh, labor relations and they didn't offer health insurance to their, uh, to their employees. They paid them very low wages, uh, working very bad hours, true uh, benefits, all of that. Um, so they decided to uh, go on a, a sustainability campaign, which was very well publicized. And they went into all of their uh, uh, thousands of stores around the US and they substituted out all the old incandescent bulbs and put in LEDs uh, and they um, did all of the easy things that you can do in terms of rerouting their trucks. They switched, you know, where possible, they switched some trucks uh, to electric, but very few, but they, they routed the trucks in ways that, that they were more um, uh, fuel efficient than they had been in the past. And, uh, and then they uh, advertised all that they had done and that they had invested millions of dollars <clears throat> in this program. And then they pointed out that those millions of dollars that they had invested um, came cost-free because they saved in their own energy costs over the years. So basically they were able to get the benefits of the publicity of sustainability without paying a nickel for it, okay? And uh, so it was the best of both worlds for them. But when it came to any really difficult <clears throat> environmental questions and the biggest one they, they, they have, one of the biggest ones, has to do with packaging, plastic packaging. And uh, things in, in Walmart and in those big chain stores are sold in hard plastic shells. And these shells are um, uh, non-biodegradable. As a matter of fact, they, they, they are uh, uh, environmentally damaging from the, from the process of making them, through the process of using them, to the process of trying to get rid of them. Uh, they are probably one of the worst uh, offenders uh, in terms of the environment, particularly the ocean environment, <clears throat> but also landfill environment. And, uh, but they don't address that question. They, that could make a really significant uh, change if they change their packaging, their plastic packaging, um, which would be very, very expensive to do, to do so, but the benefits would be real. And, uh, but they are not interested in, in looking for solutions to that uh, to, to that kind of a problem because that would cost them a lot of, a lot of money and they're not willing to go there yet. And, and that is unfortunately where most corporations are in the US, particularly most large corporations, that they're willing to do the easy things, the things that might make them look good. <clears throat> you know, they'll support a local environmental project, but in terms of actually going back and looking at their processes, um, you know, sort of all the way back to, to down the supply chain.
I don't know if you're familiar with the development in IKEA, anything, if you have been studied uh, their way of changing uh, their environmental um, capital. Uh, I was involved in the first step of, of, uh, of IKEA's uh, environmental strategy and, and uh, Ingvar Kamprad, uh, the owner, he, he said, oh, it's so good combination between environment and, and save the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what uh, that was the driver for him. Oh yeah, yeah, but but that's true uh, in in the U.S. Any if you can get that combination, almost any CEO will go for it, and and they're looking for it. But you know, often there are trade offs. There are significant trade offs. Sometimes yes. there aren't, and that's the so called low hanging fruit. Almost mm -hmm. all executives want to pick that low-hanging fruit because they get a lot of credit for them it, it makes them look good and it doesn't upset their investors mm -hmm. now what i could see if i go back and look at ikea's development since uh, this uh, first steps uh, in their environmental work um it's had this uh, pretty much of a change within the company and and the behavior on the market has changed uh, even if they have a huge sources of, of forest uh, for their products but uh, um, they put a lot of effort into education of their employees um, and also they have changed the way how they behave in the market. Um, and, no, I, uh, no, Ikea, Ikea is, is an exception, um, but I do think that most of the exceptions are not American companies. Uh, and um, <clears throat> you know, I would have a hard time citing an American company that has gone as far as Ikea and Ikea still has a long ways to go. I mean, they still use a lot of foam. They still use, uh, uh, you know, in, the, in their packaging and uh, there's still a lot of plastic in, in there. Uh, and, um, but still, I mean, they've gone much, much further than any American company uh, that I can think of. Well, uh, I will give you one example with the American company and that's uh, Interface uh, with the, 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 the late uh, Ray Anderson who ran the business on, on um, carpet manufacturing and one of the biggest actors in, in this field, the, the most progressive uh, American company I have met who really take on board the environmental issues. Um, yeah. And um, so it, it, you have some good example, but it's- uh, it, It's rare. It's, it, 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 but, yeah, by the way, Interface is still, in American terms, is still a small company. Okay, yes, it's not. Yes. It really is not major a major company. There are I can cite other companies the size of Interface, you know, that, that are doing good things as well, <clears throat> and uh, that gets back to really your your what we talked about a little bit earlier uh, before we came on uh, this this broadcast is um, the nature of the company, the nature of its ownership, and you know the size of the company. All of those things affect the. Um, the decision-making process uh, of, of, of executives. And, and when I'm, what, what I am most pessimistic about are large publicly held corporations. That is, the majority of the stock uh, is owned uh, by, uh, by investors uh, and uh, not by, uh, by founders or, or by employees. In your latest book, The Enlightenment Capitalist, you write about the pioneers uh, who try to do well by doing good within the capitalist system. Uh, you notify that the commitment to deals, uh, ideals, has often left uh, after the founder departed or 
the family ownership change. Can you tell the listener about your findings in, in your book? Starting in 1971, uh, I, I became interested in companies that were the exception in terms of the ways in which they treated their employees, the way they uh, thought about their customers, the way they thought about their host communities and, and the environment. And uh, I started collecting <clears throat> as much information about these companies as I could. Uh, over the years, uh, I identified about a hundred of them uh, that I could get enough information about to be sure that uh, uh, the information was, was relatively accurate. Uh, and there were about uh, 60 of those uh, that I was able to get really good in-depth information on. And then there were about 50 altogether that I really felt confident that I had monitored them and their uh, behaviors and their practices over a long enough period of time to be able to draw some conclusions. So out of that 50 or so companies, over a period of about uh, 30 years, uh, only four of those companies managed to maintain their enlightened practices. So shall we, in the terms we're using right now, sustainability was only sustainable in four out of 50 of the cases that, 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 that I looked at. And uh, that to me was absolutely a, um, a startling and um, eye-opening uh, conclusion because you know, I had been teaching about these companies you know, over uh, you know, 40 years. And I'd given my students, you know, I, I told them about companies like Interface and I had them look at, you know, case studies and to go visit these companies and learn more about them so that the, my students could copy them. But, but after a while, um, in, in the last 20 years or so, my students were coming back and they were saying, you know, that's ancient history, uh, Professor O'Toole, because we've gone to that company and they're not doing those things anymore. They were doing those things when you first started teaching about the company, but they're not they haven't maintained those practices. And so I started to get uh, a little bit uh, suspicious and I went back and tried to bring up all everything that I learned up to date, which I did starting about 10 years ago. And that's when I came to this very startling conclusion. Um, and um, you know, there were some wonderful things that a lot of these companies did for a brief period of time. What would happen though, is that the founder would die uh, or the founder uh, this company would be uh, acquired by another company, uh, or just the, the, in the normal succession by the by the by the third succession of leadership, almost all of the good practices had disappeared uh, in the vast majority of the companies that, that I had been studying. Not just studying; I'd been advocating them and touting them and trying to get my students to do everything that they were doing. Um, so, I mean, it was personally. A, a quite disappointing thing, but the much broader and more important, I think there's a lesson here for corporate executives. And that is that if you, you, you really, if you, you're doing the right thing, you have to address certain aspects of governance of your own organization. If you want those practices to be maintained after you're gone, it can't be personality dependent. Can you give me an example of company? Well, positive or negative? Um, Both you know, the of probably, them, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll start with, with the biggest uh, positive one 
for many years, uh, which is Johnson and Johnson. And they are uh, a pharmaceutical company and a healthcare products company. They're better known, I think, for their, their healthcare products than they are perhaps for the pharmaceuticals, although they do have this Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, but uh, the single shot vaccine, which it, it has not been terribly as successful as some of the others, but nonetheless, uh, that, that is an example of, of one of their products. They're most famous for baby powder and, and, and shampoos and the like. End of World War II, the great grandson of the company uh, issued what he called the corporate credo, which was a list of the company's responsibilities to its employees, to its customers, to the doctors and the nurses they served, and to host communities, and even to the broader society. And it was the first statement of, of, uh, of, of, of this kind of responsibility in history. And as a matter of fact, Robert Wood Johnson uh, coined the term corporate social responsibility. Uh, General Johnson, died and his successors ignored uh, this credo. But, uh, but a young person who had known him when he was a young manager growing up reintroduced the credo. And by uh, enforcing the credo, they made Johnson & Johnson the model corporation in the United States for corporate social responsibility and ethical behavior. And the, the, the case was taught in every business school uh, in the US because it was proof to many people, including me at the time, that it was possible for a large publicly held corporation to behave in a socially, environmentally sustainable and responsible manner. When that manager who had reintroduced the idea, when he retired, his successor immediately set about to dismantle everything that had been put in place to institutionalize those practices. Since that time, Johnson & Johnson has had a history now over 20 years of repeated ethical, environmental, and regulatory noncompliance. And th their history, they've gone from being, shall we say, one of the best to being among the worst and mediocre uh, uh, performer at best. And that, that pattern was the common pattern that, that I found in, as, as I say, probably about 46 of the 50 companies you know, that, that I study. Most of these companies where it's lasted are smaller companies and they are uh, employee owned or they're owned by the family. The, in manufacturing, the Lincoln Electric Company has had uh, about as good a record as you can for heavy manufacturing company over uh, a period of uh, nearly a hundred years. And they have been able to sustain that. It has been because the company uh, is largely owned by a family foundation and employee ownership. But even that company now has been selling more and more of its stock uh, on public exchanges. And there are signs that some of their behavior uh, has, has started to change too. It hasn't completely eroded yet, but there are, there, there are certainly some tensions there. Probably the best example, uh, and, and I'm picking industries where you would not expect people to behave in um, particularly environmentally uh, positive ways over a long period of time. But there was a, a, a cast iron company uh, in the South in the US that in the 1880s, 1890s, the founder left the company as a benefit company 
and the beneficiaries of the company were his employees and the host community. And that company in an industry that is notoriously environmentally uh, damaging, one in which uh, occupational self safety and health issues are rife, one in which um, they were in the South in the US, race relations were terrible. Um, they were just a miserable, these are miserable places to work. But they managed to, to have this model company. And the, the secret there is that the members of the board, to be a member of the board of that company, you have to pledge to uphold the constitution of the company as written by the founder. So directors of that company couldn't sell the company they couldn't um, sell shares on an open market, and they couldn't use the proceeds for anything other than increasing the, the, the well-being of their employees and the host community. And that's all they, so they're limited to that. And they have, they have stuck with that. Uh, in Britain, the John Lewis partnership has a very similar, similar kind of constitution, but, uh, but these are relatively rare, but where they do exist, they seem to be the best insurance policy of the continuation of good practices. John Lewis is a cooperative, uh, what you can call working corp uh, model, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is, it is technically owned by the employees, but it is actually in effect owned um, by a trust that is behaving in the benefit of, of the employees. And it has a very strict constitution about what kind of a say employees have and when employees have a say. And, to, and, and so it is a democracy in a certain extent, but it is definitely a constitutional democracy in terms of that it has, it's not direct uh, employee rule, it's indirect uh, employee rule through committees and, and elected uh, groups, and, and, et cetera, which is what you need when you have a company the size of the John Lewis partnership. Yeah, uh, pretty unique uh, uh, model of, of uh, ownership. and. And maybe we have to go to Mondragon in Spain to find the similar models of, of business ownership. Yeah, well, that's that, that is a classic cooperative there, and, and much more so than, than the John Lewis. Um, it's more democratic in, in Mondragon, and uh, it has been very successful. What is, I think, fascinating to, to note is that as successful as Mondragon has been, as successful as the John Lewis partnership, as successful as this company that I, I, I cited uh, the, in, in the South in the US making cast iron pipes, is that very few companies have copied them. Very few companies have followed them. And, and one of the, the big disappointments of the most enlightened of, these, of the capitalists, uh, of, of all of the 60 people who I looked at, the founders, they all believed that they were developing a model, a corporate model or a business model that other companies could follow, showing other companies that it was possible to be socially responsible and profitable at the same time. And they proved it in the short term. Just very sadly, very few companies have uh, uh, modeled themselves uh, after, after these companies. Harvard Business School put a case study of one of these companies in their curriculum in the early 50s. And every single graduate of the Harvard Business School spent a week on a case about one of these companies. And they discussed it. And this occurred class after class after class. 
for nearly 30 years, this case was in the curriculum. So, so you can imagine that there were thousands of Harvard MBAs who went out into large corporations who knew about the details of this case. This is Lincoln Electric Company, is the example. Yet, there's no evidence that any Harvard Business School graduate, any of those MBAs, ever attempted to do what was done at Lincoln Electric and any of the companies that they ever went to work for. Now, I mean, I find that uh, absolutely shocking uh, myself and appalling. Um, but, but you have to face these facts. I mean, these are the things that, that we're up against, you know, when we're trying to, to you know, to make change, um, systemic change in large publicly held corporations. When I name uh, companies like Ben and & Jerry and The Body Shop, what's your reflection on that? Well, Ben & Jerry's is a, is a fascinating story because Ben and & Jerry, and, and I, I, I have a particular fondness for Ben & Jerry's because one of my first MBA students was the president of Ben & Jerry's. And, and uh, when Ben & Jerry, Ben & Jerry were, were, were lovely, principled, marvelous human beings, but they were terrible businessmen. And uh, my uh, student who had an MBA uh, from the USC School of Business where I was teaching, when he took over the company, he saved the company early on and uh, he, made the, he made the company profitable and he turned it into a real business. And um, Chico Lager uh, was his name. And Chico was as much committed to the environmental messages of, uh, of Ben and Jerry as Ben and Jerry were, but he also understood that that couldn't be done if the company was not profitable. And so he, he brought the business acumen uh, to the equation. The company went through, uh, through many ups and downs financially after Chico left. It was ultimately, as you, as you know, uh, acquired by Unilever. And Unilever then uh, attempted to run uh, Ben and Jerry's uh, as a, as in effect, a wholly owned subsidiary in, with all of the practices of Unilever at the time. And Unilever was not at the time of the takeover, the company that it became under uh, Pullman. And so uh, Ben & Jerry's was losing all of these marvelous things that, that it had done. It was only after Pullman came in that he decided that it was very important to give local autonomy to Ben & Jerry's to allow them to become a benefit corporation, to allow them to go back to the practices that, that Chico and Ben and & Jerry uh, had developed. And really is one of those very rare uh, occurrences of a very large corporation doing some, something that, that is right. What is the long-term prospect for Ben & Jerry's? I don't know. There's been a change in leadership there as well. But uh, it, it did show, first of all, uh, how sincere Pullman was uh, in, in his goals to change Unilever, but second, how important it is that to have small-scale governance so that these decisions could be made at the local level of Ben & Jerry's, which is a relatively small company, rather than trying to, to make them have uniform practices with a, one of the largest global corporations in the world. They would have lost all that was unique and important about them. You can see maybe some similarity into the body shop's ownership uh, model. And also uh, L'Oreal was one of the buyers of the body shop. And Yeah, it's the same story. And of course, uh, Ben and & Jerry and Anita Roddick 
all started their companies at the same time and they were very close. You know, they were learning from each other's experiences and they were both had some, they had some common projects that they worked on and they both uh, had the experience of, of being acquired uh, by, by large corporations who did not share, uh, did not share their values. Now, both of them, you know, now, now of course, Sabati Shop now has been, re been resold to a Brazilian company who promises that they're going to restore uh, Anita's uh, practices. And I, I hope they do. And let's, let's, uh, let's pray that we, that has a, a happy ending, uh, but it was nearly all lost under L'Oreal. Yeah, but this type of company, do you think they have been strengthening the big uh, companies in, in the issue of sustainability? Well, you know, Anita Roddick said that she was going to change L'Oreal, right? Well, she didn't live long enough for, to, to test it, but, but she certainly did not. L'Oreal's practices did not change as a result of, of, of owning the body shop. And I think in, in the case of Unilever, uh, it wasn't that Ben and Jerry's uh, changed Unilever, it was that Pullman that came in and uh, Pullman already had the right values and he just recognized in Ben and Jerry's an example of, of what he was trying to, to achieve. So it's very hard for, to, for, for a, an individual or a unit of a very large publicly traded global corporation to change the values and the practices of the larger organization. Uh, there are very, very few examples of that. Most examples, and, and I can give you countless examples of this, are when people, managers at a local level in a plant or a, a, a subsidiary of a big company, that they start doing the right things what will normally happen is that the, the word will get out to top management and to the rest of the corporation and, and top management will come down on those people and they will make them adopt the practices, the uniform practices of the rest of the company and all those good practices will be lost. That's a very sad thing to say. It sounds like a broad general generalization that I can't support, but I can tell you stories that you know, will, will, will make you very unhappy uh, to, hear what, you know, to, to hear what happened. If you look at the, the, the work uh, with the values as sustainability and look at the ownership model, if it has been family owned or been public owned or um, cooperative owned uh, or B Corp and benefit corps, uh, do the ownership model um, say something about strong values? Uh, do you see uh, for the future that um, we need new types of, of uh, ownership models to strengthen and the sustainability issue? Yeah, I, I think the benefit corporations, a clear sign uh, that there is another way to do business. Uh, unfortunately, to date, most benefit corporations are small companies. There are uh, some large ones that have had discussions uh, with the B Lab uh, to become benefit companies, but nothing yet has happened. The story with, with founder-owned, family-owned, cooperatively-owned, worker-owned companies is entirely different from the generalizations that I have been making about large corporations. I can give you many, many examples of these small companies who, who are doing the right thing, and some of them have lasted three or four generations. Uh, you know, but, uh, but, but, but what is, the characteristic of these companies is that they are small, locally owned. Uh, they share a culture 
values are a part of the culture, that it's more than just values. There are, there are, other, there are other aspects of a culture having to do with um, the institutionalization of practices and, and, and the like that allow them to be, to be sustainable. Uh, and it is really only when uh, shares uh, are traded on uh, public markets. This is particularly the case in uh, Anglo-American style capitalism, uh, which would be the US, uh, Britain, um, Ireland, uh, Australia, <clears throat> Canada, and the like, where shareholders have a tremendous amount of, of power. And uh, in, 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 in these cases, uh, the pressure on managers who are viewed as uh, hired employees the, the, the pressures on those people to produce profits every quarter. Anything that they do that looks to detract from those quarterly profits uh, or marks against those uh, executives and, and it puts their own careers at, at peril. Uh, so it's very hard for, uh, in effect, the hired uh, CEO, the hired manager of a company to resist the pressures of investing community. And we see that with Pullman uh, to go back to Unilever that Pullman did it, he did it for about a decade, but you know, the pressures uh, from the city, particularly in, in London, uh, but also the, uh, uh, the pressures of other stock markets, uh, particularly in the US and, and, and in Britain, uh, are so great you know, that Pullman had to leave. He, he was probably the, uh, uh, the model of uh, an enlightened executive, the, the greatest model that we had of an enlightened executive in a publicly traded corporation. Yeah. Yeah, he was the first one in, in the uh, public owned company who who uh, stopped the quarterly reports. Oh yeah, oh, he did a lot of good things. And what is interesting is, from a historical point of view, is that he went back to the values of the founder, William Lever, in uh, the eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundred, when he became really the first British owner of a large corporation. To, uh, to practice uh, almost all of the things that we're talking about today, including he, he had a very, very strong environmental streak, uh, you know, and he wanted to have his, his workers, you know, living in communities where the factories didn't pollute the air. And he was worried about this as early as, as, as 1900. And Pullman went back to that. He said, look, he said that this is in our, our DNA and, and, and we can live these values uh, that were unfortunately lost after, um, Lever Brothers was acquired in, in, in the Unilever uh, the Unilever merger in, in about 1910. Uh, so um, the Unilever story is um, a fascinating one because it 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 has gone through so many changes over time, but there's still a strand of the original values and the original uh, uh, aspirations of the founder still has la lasted in this company. Uh, now it's like 130, 40 years, something like that, uh, which makes it uh, rather, uh, rather unique for a company its size. When we look at more into the future and what's coming up, uh, and uh, based on the criticism against the capitalist system and all types of, of business model have to be renewed to maybe to meet the challenges when we talk about climate change and other sustainability issues. And uh, the word circular economy uh, has been in the front of the discussion. 
Uh, how do you see the way forward for new thoughtful leadership for new business models? I devoted uh, my entire life to the belief that the process of change begins with education. And uh, I'm not was it the only professor in business schools who felt that way. And uh, we thought that by um, instilling a different set of values uh, in our business students, uh, and in terms of our, the consulting that we were doing and the writings that we were doing, uh, that we would have a, a long-term uh, impact uh, and bring about change uh, from the inside uh, in a non-radical way, uh, in an evolutionary way, rather than in a revolutionary way. And uh, I would say that, that uh, on the whole, uh, uh, we've, we've failed. We've had some successes on the margin. Uh, yes, I think there, there, there are some changes. Uh, things have gotten better, but they have so far, to, so much further to go uh, that it's hard to, to believe uh, that the changes will occur fast enough, for example, to head, out, to, to head off uh, the global warming crisis. I just don't think that, that, that if, you, if you look at the pace of change in corporations in the US and in Britain, I don't think it's fast enough to keep up uh, you know, with, with the problem, with, with that growing problem. So I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic on that score. That's why we have to look, I think, to government regulation. And I think that it is that there are ways in which the uh, capitalist system, the very best aspects of the capitalist system can be maintained and strengthened uh, while at the same time putting in regulations that will force corporations uh, to act in ways that are good for the that are good for the environment. Having said that, I'm also will go back to the first thing that we started talking about. You know, we have this test of this before the U.S. Senate right now, and it, it doesn't look very good. Uh, uh, it, I think some some aspects of environmental aspects of that bill will probably be uh, incorporated, but the, the things having a lot of things having to do with global warming, particularly with the burning of coal and the burning of gas, which are, are uh, uh, very, very significant contributors to global warming. I don't think those parts are going to be included uh, in, the, uh, in, in this bill. The carbon industry has uh, done a very successful job. I'm gonna say it's a good job, but a successful job in terms of convincing the American public that their, their livelihoods stake if uh, we don't increase uh, or maintain of the supply of fossil fuels <clears throat> and the use of fossil fuels at the rate we've been doing it. And uh, as long as um, that perception is in place, uh, the, the, the Congress is not, going to, uh, not, is not going to act. There's not enough pressure on Congress to act. So uh, until there's a big uh, awakening uh, on the part of the American public, I'm not speaking about the rest of the world, I, I don't know, it's different from country to country, but unless there's a great awakening on the part of the American public about the long-term perils to their children. Uh, I don't think that we're going to get any government action here either, uh, or no, nothing that's going to be significant enough. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I just hope, I hope that I'm wrong, okay? And, and I, I, I hope that everything that I've said will uh, be belied uh, uh, within the next two weeks, if not sooner. But nonetheless, uh, you know, I'm trying, I'm basing this upon, you know, trends that I've been studying, you know, that, that go back, uh, 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 in Britain and the United States now for a couple hundred years. If there are young people 
don't be discouraged. Start your own business. You can start your own business. You can do the right thing. That's the hope. The hope is that young people will say, I don't want to work for these big corporations. You know, it's not going to work. What we're going to do is we're going to start a, a second economy. And that economy is going to be one in which, you know, it will be, be for-profit businesses, but they're going to be socially responsible. They're going to be environmentally uh, uh, sustainable. And, uh, and, and perhaps we'll be, we can join the benefit corporation movement, or if not, we can still do the right thing without that. And uh, so uh, what, what I'm doing now, I say, don't give up, start your own business. You know, be a true capitalist, be an entrepreneur and, and be a social entrepreneur, do the right thing. Thanks, Jim. And thank you for the talk today. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you as a guest. Thank you, Jim. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month. And each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.